0: Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Muzia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the podcast. I want to give a special shout-out to our newest patrons, Natasha, Josef, Doug, Jessica, Anne, and Ramona. If you have found value in the podcast, I'd like to invite you to head over to patreon.com slash marinebiolife to support the show. For less than the price of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help to keep the podcast episodes coming. That's patreon.com slash marinebiolife. Question. Where do you take a boat when it's sick? To the dock. And I also have some food for thought for you today, courtesy of Ramona. If Hogwarts was in the ocean, they would play Squidditch. Today I'm chatting with founder of Love the Oceans, Francesca Trotman. Growing up in the UK, Francesca knew from an early age that she wanted to be a marine biologist, but it wasn't until she was researching shark fitting at university that she found her true calling. Wanting to make a lasting change, Francesca created Love the Oceans, a nonprofit. Located in Mozambique, Africa. Working with local communities, Francesca hopes to create a sanctioned marine protected area in Jangamo Bay in order to preserve the oceans for generations to come. Join us today as we dive into Francesca's vital research studying humpback whales, manta rays, and whale sharks. Learn how she creates eco bricks out of marine plastic and works with the local communities to make lasting change and help to make our oceans a better place. At the end of the episode, we also chat about how you can become involved with this incredible organization. Please enjoy. Francesco. welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.
1: Thanks. I'm happy to be here.
0: I want to jump right in with you because you have a really unique story. You started a nonprofit Straight out of university, which is really rare and takes a lot of uh, gumption to do. So, could you please tell me the story of what inspired you to start your own nonprofit in a totally different country?
1: Yeah, no problem. Um, So, for me, I say I kind of like got obsessed with the marine environment from quite a young age. I was one of those lucky people that kind of always knew that what they wanted to do just because I knew that I loved the oceans so I um had been obsessed since I think it was like my eighth birthday that my mom took me to the London Aquarium and I loved I loved it (laughs) and I was pressed up against the shark tank like a weird little kid and um yeah I basically I learned to dive when I was 13 went to university um did marine biology because that was just the obvious course for me to take um and then at the end of my second year I um, took a photography internship in Mozambique and it was actually in this area that I'm currently in. I learned well I was there doing photography but I saw my first shark killing so humans killing sharks um, and I was really, really angry for like three days um, at the fishermen. And then I realised that actually it wasn't the fishermen's fault and they were just trying to make ends meet. And it was actually the fin industry as a whole that I needed to be angry at. And then I wanted to work out um, how bad the fin industry was um, in the area um, because, yes, it's bad if that. Like it was upsetting to see that those individuals being killed. But obviously if that's happening on a very regular basis with lots of different individuals, then you've got a much bigger problem for the marine ecosystem because sharks are apex mm-hmm. predators so removal of them from an ecosystem is pretty damaging um, for mm-hmm. both the wildlife and the humans um, so I went back to university and I decided so I was doing an integrated master's which is basically like four years um, you don't have to reapply for your master's year so I went back into my third year Recruited some research assistants from the year below me, and then I um, went into, I came back to Mozambique, did four months research with my uh, research assistants on the shark fin trade here. So I learned about what the shark fin trade was here, um, and basically spent all that time with the fishermen learning what they were doing and why they were doing it, and then collecting data on the sharks and working on the sustainability of it. Um, And then I wrote my master's on that in my fourth year and that's basically when I began to get a bigger picture of what was going on and um, I was getting the results you would think in terms of the shark fin trade and the sustainability of it, so Mm. not sustainable basically. (laughs) Um, But I didn't have enough data to get my stats significant which meant I couldn't publish a paper, Um, so I couldn't do anything about it. Um, So I wanted... I didn't feel it was something that I could walk away from and just you know graduate and then live my life and never look back kind of thing. I w- actually wanted to do something about it um so I then started I actually looked up like charities and nonprofits and all of that kind of stuff, and I looked at how I could get out here financially um and practically collect that data um so I couldn't cover the amount of ground physically that we cover with our re- research and that I was doing with my research assistants. I couldn't continue that database just on my own. And obviously financially, I couldn't just ask people to like pay for flights and live off <laughs> nothing forever just to collect <laughs> this data. So I founded um, Love the Oceans initially to continue that data collection. Um But the more I read into sustainable strategies, um, successful conservation strategies, creating long lasting and culturally integrated change, the more I realised that we needed a multi-pronged approach and it couldn't just be the stopping the shark finning. So I changed the mission from um, stopping the shark finning in the area to establishing a marine protected area in this district. Um, We're basically so further south there's Ponta Oura partial marine reserve and further north you have Valencunas, um Marina archipelago. so you've got two protected areas and we're kind of the middle grounds and it's unprotected so we're kind of bridging that gap
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, so what we're now doing is developing a strategy that because where we are is very typical of the Mozambique coastline the problems that face the communities that we work with are pretty normal problems for the entire of Mozambique so developing a conservation strategy that can be replicated up and down the coastline is really important. Um, so that's also part of our entire mission now. So it's more of a holistic approach that will benefit humans and the environment um, with the eventual creation of the marine test area that will be locally managed. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how Love the Oceans came into being and how I did it um, in a nutshell. <laughs>
0: That's amazing. Yeah, I saw on your website that you actually have a quote from Dr. Sylvia Earle, right? Yes. Her Royal Deepness. And she was applauding your work creating the Marine Protected Area in where your organization is located. So that's pretty awesome. How do you pronounce it? Jangamo?
1: Uh Yeah, Jangamo.
0: Okay. And then the bay is... I'm you know what, I'm just gonna let you say it because I'm a totally butcher. How do you pronounce the bay?
1: <laughs> so um the whole place is called Jangamo Bay, and Jangamo okay. Bay covers three different bays. So we try and work with all three communities, but to be honest, we focus on two of them because the third one's a little bit further away, so just practically it's a bit more difficult to get to. Um but you've got right. coconut coconut bay, which is further away from us, and then we work in very closely with Pandani and Ginjasa communities.
0: Jingasa, okay. Yeah. Very cool. So are you working with Mission Blue to help create the marine protected area?
1: Yeah. So we started conversations with Mission Blue a while ago. We're just still struggling with paperwork and things like that and just the boring admin site oh. in Mozambique. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so basically Mission Blue have this initiative called Hope Spots um, where mm-hmm. they kind of um, people can nominate areas of the world with specific marine value of some kind. And we put forward all of our research and, and um, emailed them and said, like, look, this is what we're doing. We'd love to be a Hope Spot recognised by Mission Blue. And they were like, yes, this is great. Like, this is what we want from our Hope Spots, like people there that are eager to continue protecting the area and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, we've been working with them. And then eventually when we get all everything together, um, obviously – pandemic slowed things down, but <laughs> once we mm-hmm. get everything together, then um Ginjata will be established as a well, Jangamu actually will be established as a hope
0: spot. Yeah. That's amazing. And what does that actually mean? Because there there can be different levels. Like there's some protected areas that certain types of fishing are allowed in, and then there's protected areas that absolutely no fishing are allowed and really like recreational diving is about it. Uh, so what yeah. are you looking for? So
1: it's not a no-take zone that we'll be establishing. There might be part of the marine protected area that is a no-take, but that's likely Mm -hmm. to be an area that isn't too affected by fishermen anyway. Um, Because the problem with no-take zones is that uh, we don't... So the community that we work with needs the sea as a food resource. Mm -hmm. Um, So we can't just say don't fish anymore because people will continue to fish uh, because the poverty levels in our area are so high um so we can't um do a no take zone and also usually if you have like a no take zone the recreational stuff will be banned too which would also be like the diving and the fishing and and loads of different stuff that goes on um and the point of the marine protected area is to transition the community away from unsustainable fishing and especially shark fishing over to more mm-hmm. sustainable methods of fishing which still allow them to eat fish and harvest fish, but at a sustainable level that will feed future generations, therefore benefiting humans. But also the MPA will also increase the amount of tourism in the area, which is obviously a sustainable revenue. Um, So we're not looking to stop all activities um, at all by any stretch. We're looking to um, basically tighten regs on the types of fishing that can happen. Um, But also there's a large part of, uh, there's a large educational component to that to get everyone on board with that locally and have that locally managed because what Mozambique currently suffers with is a huge, huge, huge coastline. It's got over 2,700 kilometres of coastline and the country doesn't have enough human resources to put a guard every, you know, few Mm kilometres to make sure that there's no illegal fishing going on or anything like that. Um, So kind of the top-down approach may not be as effective, but if you have a community managing their own marine assets, that's much more effective. So it's a bottom-up approach that we're, taking um through the education component uh and through law change from the top side um so yeah so basically some of our scientific research is spatial mapping so mapping the pressures of fishing in certain areas and what types of fishing that is and then limiting that types of fishing in certain areas to allow reef to recover or whatever the issue is um to allow different marine ecosystems to recover within the area if that makes sense
0: Yeah, absolutely. It does. And that's something that, that you think about, you're like, okay, you know, we want to create the sanctuary and then, and then, okay, great. You have this regulation that says this is a protected area, but if you don't have an actual regulatory person or community behind it, it doesn't matter. It's just words on a piece of paper and people can go out and continue on as if it wasn't protected. So, and, and that's always a big thing is like, how do you enforce it? And if you're doing top down, it's, it's really hard to spread your resources up and down a giant coastline like Mozam has versus you're right, like a community led approach where the community regulates itself and they can educate others and kind of understand why it's important to protect the resource and that they are farming it. I mean, for lack of a better word, for future generations, not just their generation.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's so important to have, um, an educational component to this kind of strategy especially in an area like ours so we have a 50 um, percent illiteracy rate 75 percent in women um, so even if the law changes a lot of people can't even read that the law has changed let alone receive the news in any way shape or form because a lot of people can't afford mobile phones um so it's not like they get text saying like by the way this is illegal now like they don't there's no kind of like bulletin board or anything like that for notifications on law change. So the law might change, but the fishermen are likely not to even know that that law has changed. So the educational component is crucial in things like this.
0: So what do you do for the educational component? You have a team that goes in the community and interacts with them and kind of starts to shift their minds a little bit towards a more sustainable approach. How, what does that look like?
1: Yeah, so Pascal is our community outreach manager. He's actually from this local area as well. Um, so he's, um knows the kind of like dynamics and the cultural norms for the area. And then we also work with the elders in each community. So as I said, we kind of focus on the two communities, so Pandani and Ganjata communities. Each community has an elder, which is essentially like a mayor. Um, and each of those mayors part owns our project Um, so it's a community owned project Um, the community initiatives the educational components of what we do basically involve um, a lot of work with the children and then some work with the adults as well so we have our um, marine resource management teaching which is in lessons in the school so that's basically free periods in the school that the kids can optionally attend their packed lessons like all the kids attend anyways and it supplements the national curriculum um so it's got elements of like biology and geography and things like that in there but we also cover topics like marine conservation and marine protected areas and the pros and cons of marine protected areas and ecotourism and what ecotourism is versus normal tourism um and like all of that kind of stuff Uh, we also cover sea safety so um like riptides and how to get out of a riptide um, and all of that's really important because that's the next generation of fishermen, right? They're like 10 to 13 years old. Most kids are considered essentially adults by the time they get to 16 here. Um, a lot of people get married around the age of 15. So people grow up very fast. Um, so working with 13 year olds and that kind of age group is really crucial. Um, then the uh, sea safety that I mentioned and talking about riptides, that ties in with our practical work. So every Saturday we run free swimming lessons. Um for all of the kids in the community, four to eighteen year olds. Um we would do more, but it's literally just we're at capacity at the moment and you've got to draw a line somewhere on like the number of people that you're that you're teaching in the age groups and stuff. Right. Because over ninety-five percent of people can't swim in our area and we um are coastal obviously. We have a very strong riptide. There's been 13 drownings in the last two years in this region. Um, oh not gosh. even in this region, in our, in just Ginjata Bay, there's been 13 drownings in the last two years. Um, Ginjata is one of the three bays that we work in. Um, so that's a really bad problem because you basically got, if you imagine you can't swim and none of your family and friends can't swim, and then any time anyone goes in the ocean, they die you could imagine that that's going to give you a very negative view of the ocean and basically just mean that you're scared of it, right? Um, Right. And people don't want to protect stuff that they're scared of. Um, So basically what the swimming is, um, is teaching kids to um, swim from basic levels. So we have like beginner, intermediate and advanced and the kids um, progress through those once they get to advance, they're given the opportunity to become what we call an ocean conservation champion. Um, so usually kids are around like 16 to 18 by the time they reach the stage. Um, and an ocean conservation champion is given the opportunity to do further qualifications. So that can be swimming instructors, surfing, diving, um, skipper, that kind of all marine industries. Um, and those are really important because with the creation of the marine protected area, the job creation is going to be within the marine Industry with the boom of tourism that we expect to get from the creation of the marine protected area. Um, So, the employment will be in that space. So, having those skills uh, means that they can get a job and that helps alleviate poverty. Poverty alleviation helps conservation um, because people will have the financial luxury to think more about conservation. And then, on top of that, the ocean conservation champions, they also become ambassadors within their community and run their own workshops on conservation and sustainability, um, which also means that that's Mozambicans teaching Mozambicans, that's culturally integrated, long lasting change. The vision of Love the Oceans is that we eventually don't need to be here anymore. It's a sustainable model. Um, So, yes, right now we're helping provide some of the skills um, and the knowledge around marine protected areas, creation and management. Um, but the idea is that we don't have to be here anymore so then the last just finishing off the educational components so the last thing that we do um, well actually two things really is um, working with the adults so we run workshops with the active fishermen so the you're talking slightly older people like fully fledged adults um, about sustainability so that can be things like turtles and nesting because we have turtles nesting in this area um, but it can also mm-hmm. be like Methods of fishing and sustainability in terms of like gill nets versus spear fishing and things like that. Um, and then we also work with alternative livelihoods. So basically, we're helping develop um, sustainable product projects um, like aquaponics and agriculture development um, and sustainable honey harvesting. Encouraging people to and providing the tools and the initial investment as well um, to create another industry that provides a, a source of income which gives people the financial luxury not to fish anymore and it relieves the fishing pressure um so a lot of our work is that so you can like hear from what i'm saying is is basically thinking of like conservation measures but then thinking of the socioeconomic factors that can stand in someone's way for reaching that
0: Right. And that's a really important point to make is that with regulations, you know, it's people that their whole livelihood is in the ocean or in the water. And this is what they do. And this is probably what they've done for generations and generations. And this isn't unique to Mozambique or Africa. Like this is, there's communities in the US that are like this. They fish or shrimp because that's what they've done for generations. And they don't know what else to do. So by providing one, the education of, more sustainable practices, and then two different options. You're definitely Seems like that's the way to make a bigger lasting change. So that's wonderful. But this isn't all y'all do. You guys have a really amazing research aspect that's actually in the ocean. I took some time and I was like, man, this is some really awesome programs. So you have fisheries, coral reefs, you got megafauna and ocean trash. I wanted to go through yeah. and do like a synopsis of what each of these looks like. So we yeah, can start definitely. with the fisheries one because it's kind of what we're on already. Uh, you, sa- you said you said you... <laughs> survey two or three sites um and now are you working again with the locals and you're kind of recording what they're catching or are these your volunteers or staff members going out into the water and recording their observations in the water
1: it's working with the locals and recording what um the local community are catching um what size what species what sex if it's possible to sex them um and then what method as well so the most popular methods of fishing here are gill netting which is um monofilament nets really unsustainable um and that's probably the most popular method of fishing and then we have an active shark long line that goes out which is very unsustainable and then we have a we have a lot of like spear fishermen and kayak and polar polar line which is more like what we're trying to move people towards as well because that's one of the much more sustainable methods of fishing
0: and really quick gill netting and long lining are unsustainable because of the massive amounts of bycatch that occurs with these fishing methods
1: yeah so the gill netting um it's literally so here the nets have floats which are just flip-flops that are ocean trash um tied to <laughs> the top of the net um and then rocks on the bottom of the net which weighs it down so you've got like essentially this net that has quite a small mesh size going the entire length of the water column Uh, and then that net can be like 100 meters long Um, and anything that swims into that dies so like mantas, dolphins, turtles, whales literally anything that swims into that dies and the fishermen are using that method of catch because it's a easy method of catch so you put the net out then you row back to shore and then done right then you just go out a couple of hours later and collect whatever it's got um so it means that a lot of people can like go and do other jobs and things like that in that time uh, it requires less effort but it catches a lot more by catch and um, the fishermen aren't aiming to get those turtles or those dolphins or those mantas or whatever Um, but they are as a result of using that type of fishing. So we're trying to transition people away from the gill net fishing. Um, the long line fishing is unsustainable because it targets pelagic sharks. So basically you have, um, a couple of boy lines, a long line between the boy lines, and then off that long line, you've got lots and lots of smaller lines with hooks on that are baited um that sinks to about halfway through the water column, sometimes about 10 meters deep, um, maybe a bit deeper. And those baited hooks um, bring in a lot of sharks. So the sharks then bite onto those hooks, get stuck there, they die, they drown. And um, they even get munched on by other sharks because sharks are cannibals. Um, and then they're pulled to the surface. They're pulled into the boat. The hook is rebaited right there and then and redeployed. So then the long line actually never comes out of the water. It's just literally sharks taken off, rebaited, and put back in. Uh, and that's unsustainable because shark fishing is unsustainable generally because of their life strategy. So they're slow growing. They don't give birth to that many young. Um, so they cannot they have a they have a vulnerable population, they're easily exploited and their population can be pushed into the vulnerable or endangered zone very easily which a lot of the species that are caught here are vulnerable or endangered um mm. so yeah that's that's why those two methods of fishing in particular are pretty unsustainable
0: what are a couple of the more popular shark species that are caught or the more frequent i should say
1: um so the most common species of shark that's caught is the scalloped hammerhead shark mm-hmm. um which it's fin from what i understand its fins worth. um quite a lot of money uh and then we have bull sharks that are caught quite regularly and tiger sharks that are caught semi-regularly yeah those are probably like the most common ones hammerheads are very common um and then bull sharks yeah probably second and then tigers probably third
0: Mm, okay what what happens to all this data that you're collecting you bring it back you put it in a computer database whatever does the government see this or are you guys kind of storing it away for future publications or yeah, so at
1: the moment we're um, storing away for future publications. We think we need seven years of data to be able to publish a paper on the fisheries, in particular the long line uh, and the sustainability of it. Obviously, COVID's kind of messed with that plan a little bit, um, <laughs> but we hope to be to be able to publish soon, anyways. That data will also be shown to the government, um, and we plan that that will be one of the bigger um ways of creating a marine protected area and planning it accordingly and that will help us develop the because like obviously the marine protected area actual establishment is one thing like saying this area is protected that's mm-hmm. lovely but what does that actually mean in terms of like fishing regs and things like that um so development of all of that type of stuff will need to come off the back of the research um so yeah publications but then also those publications will be used in actual strategy and law development
0: legislation development for the area very cool so what are some of the other things that you guys are working on coral reefs it's got a little got a little soft spot for coral reefs um so what <laughs> does it what does a reef survey look like and how many sites do you go out to
1: um so we use an adapted version of reef life survey which is basically um so we use a 25 meter transect line um and we deploy that we swim around it um like five meters out five meters up with our gopro faced forward swim a loop around it and that's looking at um non-cryptic species like species that can swim off essentially away from mm. you um, so your snappers and things like that. And then we do another swim around the transect line that's two meters up and one meter out, and that's looking at things that are cryptic, so um they don't really move. So you're looking at your echinoderms, so that's your um sea stars and your sea cucumbers, um, your sea urchins, and then sometimes like eels and things like that, stuff that doesn't really move that much. Um, And then we do photo quadrats as well along the transect. And those are looking at um, actual benthic cover. So uh, benthic cover, seabed cover. Um, So what actually is a substrate that we're looking at? So um, that can be, because it's very different. So basically coral polyps colonize bare rock, right? So Mm -hmm. if you're taking a quadrat, which is just a square, Um, and it's a square split into smaller squares so you can estimate the percentage cover roughly of an area and we take photos of that square over the seabed every 2.5 meters along our transect so looking at that um, it's very different if you have like 50% coral coverage and then 50% bare rock versus 50% coral coverage and 50% ascidian cover for instance ascidians being a competitor to coral um ascidians also and and sponges they both cover um they both colonize their rock which means that they would outcompete coral so if they've colonized that area of rock already the coral can't colonize that area um so it changes the like potential for the coral to continue growth in that area um continue colonization so it's important to know about the competitors of the reef as well the reef system mm-hmm. as well um So, yeah, then we take GPS points of wherever we are doing the survey and then we can repeat the sites that we're at. Um, We operate at a lot of the local dive sites here, which is um, an interesting perspective as well, because it brings into play the kind of human wildlife conflict and what what damage divers can do to reefs and things like that. Um so it's another area that we're kind of looking at on the sidelines. So I can't actually remember the number of sites that we because we actually so there's a few different sites that we have like names for, but then within those sites you can do loads of different surveys. Um so gotcha. So you have like big
0: main points. areas that you cover and then within those areas you will you'll do different transects and just kind of pick up and drop as you go along. Yeah, exactly.
1: As long as we've got the GPS points then we at least know where that's happening.
0: What are some of the impacts that you've seen from the dive sites, the human impacts?
1: There's a theory that we're working on at the moment, which is the manta rays, to do with the manta rays. So basically there's this reef here called Manta Reef, which if you Google Mm -hmm. diving in Mozambique, it almost always comes up and everyone goes on about it. Everyone wants to see it. You've got boats driving from like, there's a town further up North from us called Tofu. That's very popular with diving. People drive like 40 minutes to this dive site. For us, it's about 10 minutes from us. Um, personally, it's not my favourite dive site in the area, but it is the dive <laughs> site that people bang on about when they talk about Mozambique. Um, it's called Manta Reef, and that's because it used to have loads and loads and loads of mantas. Like You would almost always be guaranteed to see a manta when you went there. Now, in the last, I would say, four years, four to five years, Um, the manta numbers have dropped off like quick, like really, really, really steep decline in the number of manta sightings. Now you're lucky if you see a manta in five dives there. Hmm. Um, So the question is why? We still have our whale sharks in fairly large numbers here um, seen on a pretty regular basis. And whale sharks are also filter feeders feeding off zooplankton blooms. So we don't think it's zooplankton blooms. Um, also, there's there there are a few mantas further north, but they seem to have left there as well, which is a more touristy area, more dived area. There are a lot of mantas still a bit further south of us. Um, I think uh, there was like seven hundred sightings in a, uh, actual IDs, not even sightings, just IDs of individuals in a season just further wow. south of us. So. Yeah, there's, there's plenty of mantas around. It's just a question of knowing where they are. So then the question is, why aren't they going to Manta Reef anymore? The reason that they were going there in the first place was because of the formation of the reef. You have these plateaus of coral, um, big flat areas of coral, which mantas use for cleaning stations. Mantas can spend up to eight hours cleaning a day. And basically they just hover over these cleaning stations and the rats go in their mouths and like uh, butterfly fish and loads and loads of different fish that all live on this coral reef. They come up and they clean the manta um, and they can hover there, which is great. And it's amazing to see these animals get clean like that. Now, the problem is, is that humans don't realize that we're really big and we're pretty noisy underwater because of the bubbles um, and quite scary because animals aren't used to us. Right. So if the mantas aren't there, a lot of people just swim over the reef, just looking at the cool animals and stuff. But they don't realize that their presence alone actually scares a lot of animals off. Mm -hmm. um so if a human swims through a cleaning station by accident um and that happens repeatedly which for a popular site like manta reef that does happen a lot especially if there's um really no kind of education around cleaning stations what they look like and why not to swim through them Uh, you then have a situation where the wrasse the butterfly fish all of the fish that are cleaning that manta they get scared they leave that coral Um, they leave that coral reef and they go live somewhere else and that coral reef then dies because it doesn't have the animals maintaining it anymore that it needs Um, and that can mean that uh, the mantas don't return there anymore so it's this human wildlife conflict potentially uh, as a result of irresponsible diving we don't know that's for certain we need to collect a lot more data before we can actually know that's for certain at all. Um, mm-hmm. And that's obviously a very difficult hypothesis to prove because no one is willing to admit that they swim through a cleaning station. <laughs> um, so it's extremely difficult to get data on. We don't know if we will ever prove it, but um, we, are, we have an underwater drone here that we were sponsored by um, uh, Open Rov and we can deploy that on different sites so we've been trying to find some new cleaning manta cleaning stations um and basically other other areas that the mantas could have moved to because we know that they are around it's just a question of why they've left the area and yeah where they've gone um whether they have left the area or whether they're just on a different site that we don't even know about because where we are is very off the beaten track so There's plenty of dive sites or, well, coral reefs that we haven't even dived. They've never been dived. They haven't even been discovered yet. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, investigating to do. Um, And also we know that it's not because the mantas are being caught because we have um, the fisheries data set for the area. So we know that they're not being caught at an unreasonable rate in the area. So, yeah, it's just basically developing the hypotheses of that
0: really interesting so this is all part of the coral reefs and this is where you've noticed mantis stuff but you also do megafauna research yeah. and surveys um and we just chat a little bit about mantis but and the whale sharks we also get migrating humpbacks will you chat a little about what a survey for uh, all three of them may look like because that's yeah pretty unique area that you're in to have all three of those species it's awesome yeah
1: we're very lucky we have the flagship species which is why we're pretty confident the marine protected area will work here um that, the whole kind of strategy that we've developed um so for mantas and whale sharks it's a similar kind of survey so um mm-hmm. obviously we're collecting data on sightings in terms of like you see a whale shark great whereabouts uh any kind of data on it so like um, size or sex or anything like that um, that's all really great information. But actually being able to ID the individual um, can really help too. So we can get an idea of the population of the area. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a similar process for whale sharks and manta rays for that. For manta rays, it's the spot formation on the belly of the manta ray. And then for whale sharks, we use the left-hand side um, of the whale shark. That's just our database. but um, We use the left-hand side of the whale shark between the gill slits and the pe- end of the pectoral fin. Um, that spot formation there that's unique to each whale shark so you can ID a whale shark from that for humpback whales it's the tail fluke of the humpback whale that's unique to each humpback whale Um, that's a slightly more difficult data set for us because you can't be so you can't get that data in the water because um, the water can distort the coloration for the humpback whale Mm -hmm. Um, and that's part of the um, like IDing process of the tail you need the coloration of the whale Uh, whale tails so the whale tail has to be out of the water um which whales are pretty quick moving whale sharks are pretty (laughs) slow mantas are pretty slow whales are rapid (laughs) so it's pretty difficult to get IDs on them Um, so that's one of the things that we do but we also are collecting vocalization data on um humpback whales in the area so basically we have a hydrophone that we deploy over the boat Um, We had some stationary pods that we were using last year, but uh, we had to give them back to the university. Um, But basically the hydrophone is an underwater microphone that records everything underwater. Um, But we're using it for humpback whales and dolphins a little bit too. Um, And with this, we can record the song. So, um, well, we're looking at all vocalisations really But in our area, we have mother and calf pairs, and then we have um, mating pods. So the humpback whales come to our area to mate and give birth, but they don't feed or anything like that where we are. So um, the males are the singers for humpback whales. Um, Females don't sing. Um, They make like kind of grunts and moans and drum kind of sounds to their calves and vice versa, but um, not the like classic singing that you get on like, yoga tapes <laughs> um, not the whale so, song. Um, yeah not the whale song that's that's your male humpback whales um it's thought that that's because of courtship but there's like no one actually knows so that's part of the reason that we're collecting it we're linking surface behavior what we're seeing on the surface to what we're hearing underneath the water but the limitation of that study is that it's really we have so many humpback whales here right you can be surrounded by like eight humpback whales at once and so, putting one hydrophone in the water it's extremely difficult to work out which individual is making that noise and mm. therefore which what behavior is relevant to that um mm. vocalization so that's quite a big limitation, so what we've actually been looking at now is um the song and what it's made up of, so you have a humpback whale song, and then within that song you have themes and phrases um and you can so each pod has its own song and then when pods um come into contact with each other they swap part of their song so it's basically like one of the most basic forms of cultural transmission in the animal kingdom but essentially mm-hmm. you can then using those like that vocalization data you can actually um track where those whales have come from um so we work with Loads of different NGOs, so there's like five different countries maybe five different countries that we work with where there's NGOs deploying hydrophones on the same dates, the same time that we are, and all of that kind of stuff. Recording um humpback whale song and then breaking that phrase down and publishing a paper together, um breaking the song down into phrases and looking at the composition and then looking at migration patterns with humpback whales. Um, and that's that can also be used to establish the. Uh, marine protected area in our area if we can prove that it's a crucial ground for the humpback whales which we know it is but it's just a case of getting the data um, as well as the ids from the individuals as well so the ids of the whales the whale sharks and the manta rays being able to prove that there are these incredible flagship species that people travel all over the world to see um, being able to prove that we have them in our area in fairly large numbers and that we can pretty much guarantee a tourist a sighting of a whale during high season. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really important data to be able to um, give the financial incentive for the marine protected area.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I did see that. Your goal is to be able to provide the data that these animals are eco tourism assets. And I mean, if you're sitting there and one of your problems is you can't identify which whale the song is coming from because you're surrounded by eight humpback whales. It seems like a really <laughs> good case for that. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so you're fine. you kind of like final mission was the ocean trash, which I mean, it's just an issue worldwide, o- oceans worldwide, even forests worldwide. Um, And I think it's really interesting that you guys actually categorize what you find. What are some of the more common things that you do find on the beach and are they, can you tell if they're local or are they washing up from far distant shores?
1: I was actually just having a conversation with one of the diving instructors in the area about um, other things we can do with the trash that we collect. Um, The One of the most common things is bottle caps, which, to Mm -hmm. be honest, is really scary because we collect in 40 minutes, in a 40 minute walk last year, our volunteers collected over a thousand bottle caps. Um, And what's scary about that is that the bottles are somewhere, (laughs) not on the shore, but they are definitely still in the water because it's not like we're just chucking away bottle caps without the bottles. Um, Right. So that always terrifies me because every time I pick up a bottle cap, I'm like, oh, where is the bottle? Mm -hmm. Um, So with the bottle caps, we can't really tell if they're local or international. Um, We've had a trash wash up like last week, I think it was. I did a beach clean and um, we had like brands, Indonesian brands washing up on our shores and stuff.
0: Obviously Mm. that could
1: have come off a boat. Um, I don't know that it was definitely, it's definitely come from Indonesia. But it's perfectly possible that it has as well, because the way that the currents work where we are, we basically have the currents coming through from Indo-Pacific right over to cracking over the top of Madagascar and then down through the Mozambique channel. So it's perfectly possible that um, the trash can come across. It will take about three years to come across from Indonesia to us, um, which Mm -hmm. is um, very feasible time for plastic (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, considering that last like 450 years. So um three years is nothing in its life cycle. Um right. so yeah, we have um a lot of bottle caps. Anything with branding I try and like take photos of to try and shame the brand So <laughs> <to laughs> thinking about um potentially more like eco-friendly packaging. Um we had Coke and Nestlé come up uh last week in our beach clean, which isn't very surprising considering um, how widespread those brands are um, mm-hmm. and then we get cigarette butts uh, I know that the cigarette butts we get are local um, we get that's that's much more popular in well not popular but it's much more common in uh tourist season because uh, hmm. a lot of people smoke on the beach and then just leave their butts there
0: yep use it like a giant ashtray we have the same problem in Florida yes. and it blows my mind
1: yeah it gives me a quite bad rage
0: yes
1: (laughs) um and then uh what else do we have um toothbrushes very common um Mm. plastic toothbrushes Mm -hmm. and flip-flops shoes i found a whole trainer in my beach clean the other day oh my gosh um yeah that's not uncommon um after like we have sporadic cyclones here because we're in the cyclone region and after we have cyclones and stuff, there is so much more trash that washes up. Yes. Um, but we also have like the river further north that dumps into the sea. And obviously um, trash is a big, like it accumulates in river systems and just ends up in the ocean. Um, so that will also be a contributor. So there will be some trash from inland. Um, but we think a lot of it is international as well.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I see that as well. Here we get we'll get trash from the Caribbean just because of how the currents work here. So it's it's really interesting to see and to see how we're all connected. And then it's really frustrating at the same time. Mm. I saw that you guys do um, eco bricks with some of the garbage that you collect. Could you explain what an eco brick is and how it kind of helps the local community or how it gets them involved?
1: Yeah, so an eco-brick for us, so there's varying different types of eco-bricks. When you Google eco-bricks, there's a few different types that come up. But basically for us, what we do is we collect the beach trash then, and this is literally what I've got to do this week. Um, (laughs) It's just very time consuming and manual labor. But essentially what it is, you collect the trash, you cut it up, you clean it, you dry it. And then we collect two litre plastic bottles from the local resorts here. Um, So like Coca-Cola bottles and um, sparletta bottles are the most common types of like um, big two litre bottles that are thrown out by the resorts. So we go and collect those. We wash them. uh, We dry them and then we pack all the trash as tightly as possible into those bottles. They Mm -hmm. have to meet a minimum weight. So for us, that's 0.6 kgs. Um, and when it meets that weight it's like really really sturdy you can't squish it there's no space in there like it's hard um and those then we glue the tops on and then that forms a brick so those bricks can then be used in construction work and we use them in our local construction work they are quite labor intensive take a while to build um if i just do one on my own it can take like four to five hours of just Mm. cutting and packing um So we're trying to now come up with like new snazzy ideas of how to speed things up. And I really want to get like a meat grinder and then just put the plastic through it. There Um, you go. But but, uh, yeah, still thinking on that one.
0: (laughs) Very resourceful. I mean, there's so many different projects that you have and you, your doors are open to, well, I mean, pandemic aside, your doors are usually open to (laughs) everyone in the whole world. So if people want to get involved with Love the Oceans, what does that look like?
1: Um, So we've actually got a few different programmes, so when we can all travel again, um, you're welcome to come out um, and see what we do. Basically, we have our five-week programme, which is for people that are students studying a related subject at university, and then we have our two-week programme, which is open to the public. We have our three-week programme, which is for career changes and for um, people like taking a sabbatical want to get some experience in marine biology it's basically a crash course in marine biology Mm -hmm. um, designed for people that don't have the background training in the subject area Uh, and then we have our um, swimming program so we work with a charity called Swim Taika so basically swim instructors um, come out and help us during the winter holidays with the kids and when the kids aren't at school we can teach swimming all day but it's fairly lengthy days so we rope in some extra instructors for those holidays and um, teach as many kids as we can um, swimming. And then we also have our Photographers Without Borders partners. Um, they basically come out and um, they have a professional photographer and videographer, um, Jeffrey Garriott, has been doing it for the last couple of years. He's absolutely amazing, worked with some incredible brands um, like Nat Geo and stuff, and he leads those workshops the photographers learn from them it's not about how to take a photo it's about how to use your photography to tell a story and change the world mm-hmm. um and then um they document what all of the work that we're doing so it's kind of like a media media experiencing NGO kind of thing where they can yeah document what we're doing they learn about what we're doing but they document it through so yeah we've got like a few different ways that we also work with some schools and we also take like um groups as well so like dive groups dive school groups and stuff like that Group travel um and then all of those um trips fund our research um, so yeah we're a non-profit and um, we're very transparent about all of that kind of stuff yeah we have basically something for everyone obviously with this pandemic it's affected a lot of things so at the moment we're running some online campaigns so people can go online and check out our um, instagram facebook twitter youtube all of that it's just at love the oceans
0: love it perfect thank you i have a couple more questions before we officially wrap up here one of my very favorite questions to ask is what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And I know spending a lot of time out on the water, you probably have a lot of really memorable moments. So this could be like a favorite interaction with wildlife or just a day that everything went right or just, oh my goodness, everything went wrong that day, but it's a really great story (laughs) now.
1: Probably humpback whales. It's difficult to choose, really. We're really lucky we've got so many... Amazing animals, and like that, each sighting is really special for me for a different reasons. Like I, ha- I had my first living. So usually, I've seen so many scalloped hammerheads um, killed in the fisheries, but not any alive in the mm. water swimming around. Um, so I saw my first one of them. Uh, I think it was last year or the year before something alive on the surface and that was like a really big moment for me but wasn't a spectacular sighting in terms of global diving um, <laughs> I think the humback whales are probably our biggest like our biggest and best sightings that we have here we had um probably most memorable last year or maybe the year before we went out on uh the boat we had two photographers of us from photographers without borders and the weather was due to turn bad the next day And we didn't know how bad it would be, like how long it would be bad for. So we wanted to just get out. So we went out later than we usually would. um, And it was pretty rough. It wasn't like the nicest conditions in the world, but we tend to see more humpback whales when the water's a bit rougher. So Mm. we went out and we went far, we went far out the back line and um, much further than we normally would. And, we were just minding our own business going at like a little, um, it wasn't particularly fast, but we were just going at a steady pace. And then this whale comes up behind the boat and (laughs) the whales are just so broad. Like they're so, it's, I always, it takes my breath away whenever I see a whale from the front or the back because, and it just comes out the water just swimming along because it's just so broad. Um, And they're just massive. Like the whales here, 36 tons, like they're massive, massive things. 16 meters long um and this this uh, I think it was a male came out of the water just behind the boat and I was like Jay 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 my friend was driving and I was like Jay you need to speed up the whales right behind the boat and he was like I can't there's whales in front of the boat and I looked forward <laughs> and the same thing was happening in front of the boat and then each side of the boat as well the whales came up so we were fully surrounded and we had to keep the boat at a, like absolutely constant pace um and it was a mating pod and the mating pods are pretty Um, they can get really really rough so basically what you have is like all of these males chasing this female for like three days um, and the mating is down to female selection and the males can like jump on each other and friggin like kill each other during these three days like it's really really brutal and and we'd like and you're right there in the middle of it it. (laughs) And there's, like, three of the males just, like, reaching left, right and center. Like, I've actually got a photo just on my iPhone. Like, it's a terrible photo quality. But it was just an insane moment where three of them jumped out of the water all at the same time. And I was like, what? What is going on right now? And I'm, like, kind of losing it because I'm, like, really nervous with the whale behind us. I don't want it to, like – because they can – so they can damage themselves on their props, but they can also knock the engines off the boat. And we're pretty far out back. So if something happens – I'm kind of screwed so I'm like and the photographers are going mental obviously they're just like click 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 click, click. And the, the whale behavior like it's fairly pre- um predictable when they start breaching because they breach they go down they breach again and after a while when you spend a lot of time with these animals you can kind of predict where they're going to be coming up out of the water so we kind of so we were I was just pointing out to the photographers like and there and there and there and the photographers would like line up their shot and got some really amazing footage probably the best footage that we've ever had of um whales in the area taken from the boat and um yeah that was probably like probably my number one encounter that was just like pretty incredible (laughs) and like just to be surrounded by so many of them and It was almost like we were were a whale, kind of, because we were like right in the middle of the pod. It's very cool.
0: That's amazing. One of the pod. What a cool story. (laughs) What a cool experience. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, you've done a lot, and I mean, you've moved from the UK to Mozambique, which is a huge leap. What are some of the, I mean, I feel like you could probably write a novel on this, but like, what are one or two of the bigger challenges? That you have faced, and this could be like personally or professionally, or just kind of challenges with trying to do what you're doing.
1: We've been really lucky. The local community is a dream here, so um, we haven't faced any problems in terms of like um, our work and all of that kind of stuff. And and personally, like it's always been really friendly, so I never had any of those kind of problems. Um, uh, probably um, explaining to friends and family. Uh, what I do and why it's so important. Um, and especially if those friends and family are like UK based or um, USA based, but based in a country that's more developed. Um, trying mm-hmm. to explain like what I do is quite difficult um, <laughs> and trying to get people to understand why it's important. And we all need to care about <laughs> the oceans. That was all, that's always a challenge. Um, and I guess we've struggled a fair amount with the expat community here um and trying to get people on board and working together as a team because ultimately that's what you need for for uh, successful conservation trying to get people um on board with ethical interactions with marine animals um and get people to kind of all abide by the same rules and like uh yeah rules and regulations when it comes to driving on the beach or interacting with the animals because unfortunately there is a lot of driving on the beach here which obviously is lethal
0: for turtle nesting. Um, yep. So trying to get people not to try Education. Yeah, education. Education on all fronts is the biggest challenge. I feel like it's a, it's a very common challenge that most people face. Yeah. It's trying to educate others. I like to end each episode on a conservation ask for the audience. And we kind of touched on it already during the show, but what is your ask for the audience to go forth and do after listening to this?
1: I think my ask for the audience uh, would be um, to consume less. So by that I mean consuming less um plastic, consuming less needless products. So whether that be fast fashion um or whether that be packaging or even just products that you just don't need, um, think about before you buy it and think, do I really need this? um not only will thinking that save you money but also the amount of energy and resources that go into creating those products um it's an environmental strain uh, and the world is suffering with overpopulation and the main problem with overpopulation is overconsumption um and we just can't create enough and at a rate that is still sustainable for the world um So yeah, consuming less would be my, my ask, I think.
0: It's a great ask. I'm going to tack one on there. Get a, get a reusable water bottle and use it. Oh yeah. Wonderful. Uh, So if the audience wants to, where can they find you, connect with you and love the oceans?
1: So if they want to connect with us, then please um, follow us on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and all of those kind of platforms. We're on LinkedIn too. Um, We're just at love the oceans. So super easy to find. and you'll, yeah, you'll see all of our campaigns that we're running um, during COVID uh, when travel is not allowed. And we'll also be posting any updates that we possibly can during the COVID situation to let you know what we're up to.
0: Thanks. And I'll put a link to all of that in the show notes as well. Perfect. Well, Francesca, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed our chat today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.